Turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3 is where we're going to be as we continue our series and our look through this great book of the Bible, the story of God's people moving from enslavement to the promised land and the God who leads them, their covenant gods, and what that teaches us is God's New Testament covenant people, the new Israel. I'll read um, Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. You can read along in your own Bibles, which I hope you have. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen for you. Hear God's word. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb's another name for Sinai. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked... And behold, the bush was burning, yet he was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said to him, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you, that when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And indeed, we find later on in the Exodus that that this is the mountain where he brings them. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent to you, you, uh, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This ends the reading of the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. We began looking at it last week, but if you remember our our audience, the original audience of Exodus is the people of God after having come through the wilderness on the verge of entering into the promised land, and God has said, the mission I have for you is to go and take that land. And the Lord, through the story of Moses, is calling Israel to engage in the mission that he has given them. The mission of all kinds of activities. It may look worldlike with a sword. It may be planting crops in the promised land. It may be being fruitful and multiplying to fill that land with God's people. But if I could describe the mission of this, of the mission of people's God, is to be constantly moving further up and further in and further on on what God has called us to do. 
to take and shape the promised land. And so for us, the mission of God is to be engaged in the mission that God has given to us. To make disciples by the gospel of God and to make manifest, manifest, to make visible the kingdom of God. And to constantly live our whole life from beginning to end, day in and day out with every aspect of who we are. Moving further up and further in and further on in the specific tasks that God has given you to do for the glory of his name. This is the call. For Moses, the particular call was deliver the people from Israel. This is God's call that he brings to him. He says, Moses, go to Egypt. Deliver my people from Pharaoh and from enslavement and bring them out. And what is Moses' response? Well, it is the heart heart response that I think most of us have been having the last couple weeks. I'm actually surprised there's this many of you even here this morning. The call to mission is not an attractive one. It is a difficult and a painful one. It is a call to death. And what is it like whenever the Lord calls us into a new mission, a painful, perhaps a more painful mission, or one that pushes our capacities, or a a more long-suffering, boring mission that gets us no recognition? What do we say? Lord, I object. Lord, I'd rather ignore your call. And the core objection that we see from Moses in verse 11 is what? Moses said to God, who am I? Who am I? In fact, this will be the first of five objections we see that Moses makes to God in the midst of this call in chapters 3 and 4. I actually was making the attempt to preach through both chapters 3 and 4 until yesterday afternoon, and I realized this is too much. But let me just rock very quickly. There are five objections, and here's how they go, and see if they sound similar to maybe some of the things that you say. Objection one in chapter three, verse one, who am I? Chapter, objection two, who has sent me? In verse 13. Objection three, they won't listen to me. In verse, four, verse one of chapter four. And objection four, I don't talk good. In verse 10 of chapter four. That's for a lot of you. That's your objection. Uh, objection five is simply a send someone else. You can see that in verse 13 of chapter four. Now, what is the Lord's response to Moses' objection of, I don't have what it takes? Who am I? I don't got it. Who am I? The essence of God's reply to Moses is this. It doesn't matter all that much who you are. What matters is who I am. It's who I am. He doesn't say to Moses, oh, Moses, you're better than you think you really are. He doesn't say to Moses, look within. You you are such a good father, Moses. You've got what it takes. If you just look inside of you, all you have to do is believe it. That's a recipe for great discouragement. Because that's what the world says to us. It's what all my kids' cartoons say to them. Just look inside. Follow your belief. You have what it takes. Until they hit a season in their life where they clearly don't have what it takes. And then what happens? It's called anxiety and depression. He doesn't say, oh, I've heard you talk, and I mean, well, you're not that bad. He doesn't say, he doesn't encourage Moses' confidence, in other words, in Moses. Which, by the way, these are the way we naturally usually encourage one another, even in the Christian world. When we try to encourage one another's confidence in ourselves, we are only, frankly, compounding the problem. 
We are only saying, hey, why don't you give a little more attention to the weakling in the mirror? That will really help in light of God's mission. Instead, what does the Lord do? The Lord does not sweep aside the difficulties of our weaknesses. He does not say, Moses comes and says, Lord, I'm inadequate. And what is God's response? But the Lord said, I am adequate. Moses says, I'm incapable. And God says, guess what? I am. He neither says to him, of course you're adequate, Moses, nor does he say to him, it doesn't matter. Instead, he accepts Moses' sense of inadequacy as one of the facts of the situation and then simply counters by pointing over and over again in this passage to God's own adequacy. And Moses' position was to say, look, I'm not up for the job. And God's position was to say, that's okay. It's not about your abilities, it's about mine. And so what does God say in verse 12? Moses says, who am I? And what does God say? I will be with you. It sounds eerily similar to the mission God gave us. Matthew 28, in what's called the Great Commission, God says, for I am with you always. I am with you almost always. God promises the sufficiency, not of us, but of his own presence. And so the key question for us is this. Who is this God who promises to be present with me? That is no comfort to me unless he is great. When I tell you and call you into mission and I say, well, guess what, guys? I'll be with you. You go, what good is that? You're useless. And so if God comes to us and says, I'm going to go with you, and you go, well, who are you? Who are you, God? And that is the question of this text. And what draws our eyes of what we need in order to engage in the mission that God has called us is to draw our eyes away from ourselves. And so God goes, what might get their attention? What about a burning bush that doesn't burn up? And if that doesn't happen, what about a talking bush? That'll get their attention. You see, in the talking bush, and in this passage, we meet the God who is. The God who says he's going to be present with us, we ask, well, who are you then? And he says, come find out. And so we ask that question. That's our driving question this morning. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord who's going to be with me? Well, there's many things that can be said in chapters 3 and 4 that answer Moses' objections, but we only have time to look at three this morning. And the first is this. The Lord, as we sang this morning, is holy. The Lord is holy. And it says this, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame, but out of the midst, and out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Now, really quickly, before we get to the holiness of God, we have to deal with this angel of the Lord character. We've got to clear the deck a little bit. Because it can be rather distracting for us. What does this mean? I need to show you that this angel of the Lord is no mere angel. Here is actually a great mystery for many interpreters. But there has been, there's been much scholarly debate about exactly who this angel of the Lord is. But notice that what I want you to, to, to see is this. Is that I believe the angel of the Lord is the Lord himself. Why do I say that? Because in verse 4 it says this. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush. In other words, the angel of the Lord is the one speaking, and then verse 4 refers to the one who is speaking from the bush as being God himself. And it connects God with the angel of the Lord. The messenger did not simply, simply see and speak for God, but the messenger, the angel of the Lord here, actually claims to be God. 
This is helpful to understand. We look at the word angel and we go, that's a particular character. That's Michael and things with wings. But actually, in the, in the specific Hebrew, it simply says messenger. It doesn't necessarily have to say angel. Messenger of the Lord. Well, the messenger of the Lord can be the Lord himself. In fact, there's a pattern in the Old Testament of this. In Genesis chapter 22, a rather famous text in the scriptures, where God calls Abraham to go out on a mountain and slaughter his son. And it says this, and it says, Abraham reached out his hand in verse 10 of chapter 22 and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Sounds familiar, right? Moses, Moses, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy boy, or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from who? Me. Says the angel of the Lord is talking. Was he withholding from just any mere angel? No, it's the Lord himself. The angel here seems to be God himself talking. We see the exact same thing happening in Genesis 16 for Hagar. That an angel of the Lord comes and refers to himself as the Lord. And this appearance of the Lord as an angel is what is called a theophany. Now that is a 50 cent theological word that essentially means it's a God appearance. It's a, God, a visible manifestation of the invisible God. God shows up in all sorts of ways physically in the Old Testament. He shows up as a smoking pot. He shows up as a cloud, as a pillar of fire. He shows up as an angel. And in the greatest fulfillment of this showing up is in Jesus himself. Physical manifestation. You might ask, why would God actually bring it and show himself as an angel? Well, I don't necessarily know. God chooses maybe what particular gear to wear on a particular day when he's going to reveal himself to his people. But the Lord puts on his, what he would call his going to call in clothes. That might be angelic and that might be a pillar of fire or smoke. But when he wants to manifest or reveal himself to his people, he puts on some sort of physical appearance to reveal himself. And since the time of the early church, Christians have wondered if this is the pre-incarnate son Is this Jesus who is the fullest and most perfect theophany, the the perfect representation, the fullness of God himself come in human flesh? Well, there's great debate as to whether that's true or not, but here's what we do know. Whether or not it was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ in the bush, one thing is certain. This is the Lord. This is the Lord. So that brings us to the issue of who this Lord is. This Lord is holy. The one who is present with Moses at the bush is a holy God. And we, how do we say, where do we see that? Well, we see it in the way he manifests himself in fire. The Lord, it says, appeared to him in a flame. The angel Lord appeared in a flame of fire. Now, throughout the Old Testament, one of the ways in which God manifests himself is as Fire and Genesis 15 is a smoking pot, and Exodus 13 as a pillar of fire, and Exodus 19, the Lord descends upon Sinai as smoke and cloud. And so God shows up as fire. Now, what does that tell you? What is our relationship to fire? We are fascinated by fire, aren't we? Especially dudes. I mean, there is, I could spend days just sitting there poking at fire and kind of, for many hours, just hanging out around a fire, putting new pieces of wood on it. And while we are fascinated by fire, we also know, what are we not supposed to do with fire? You don't play with it. So we have to teach children and sometimes grown men, don't play with fire. Fire is to be taken seriously. It is beautiful. It is awesome. It can be life-giving, but it also can be deeply destructive, and so is your God's. He wants you near. 
But you also have to recognize that he is holy. He is mighty. And in fact, God is to be taken seriously. And God talks about this in the way we, we, we worship him in particularly. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses says to the people of Israel, For the Lord your God is a what? Consuming fire. And in fact, this is not just true in the Old Testament. This is true in the New Testament as well. Fire, that holy God. That's only a New Old Testament thing, right? No. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29 says this. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And that leads to what we see in verses 5 and 6. What does God say to Moses as he approaches the burning bush? Stop. Do not come too close. Take off your sandals, sandals for the place in which you stand is holy ground. Holy ground. What makes the ground holy? Well, the presence of a holy God. And when God displays his glory in a specific way and in a specific location, what, what usually happens to people when God does this? But God is usually doesn't have to ask them to take off their clothes. The clothes just pop off. They just go, they just, they have great reverence for the Lord and they fall in fear and bowing down before him. In verses six, it says, Moses doesn't go, oh, this is really neat, a burning bush. No, what does it say? It says he hid his face. You see, when men encounter the holiness of God, there is fear there because we immediately come to a deep-seated sense of our own lack thereof, of our own sinfulness. This is not a primitive response by, Mo, by Moses, but a primary response of mankind to a holy God throughout the Bible. In chapter 6 of Isaiah, when Isaiah is being called by the Lord, he, when he sees God's holiness, he does what? He tears his clothes and he goes, woe is me, I am undone. In Luke chapter 5, a New Testament verse, when Peter sees the glory of Jesus in the midst of a miracle, Peter says, get away from me, I cannot handle being in your presence. And in Revelation... And Revelation, if you were to, Revelation is wacky to us, but we, what we think, one thing we can know about Revelation is that when God and his holiness shows up, people bow down and they are frightened and they tremble. And let me ask you this, when you approach God, is there trembling in his presence? Perhaps you don't take seriously his call upon your life because you think he is a God whose commands are optional. Being called by God's mean, mean, by God means you have to be confronted by his holiness. In fact, it is at the very place of being confronted by the holiness of God that we are most often called deeply into service. In Isaiah chapter 6, after Isaiah sees the holiness of God, what does God do then? He touches them and he purifies him. And then he says, who will go and be a messenger for me? And Isaiah goes, send me, I'll go. In Ezekiel chapter 1, in one of the most inexplicable and incomprehensible descriptions of God's holiness and glory, this bizarre setting of Ezekiel chapter 1, it is there that after God displays his glory to Ezekiel, he says, hey, Ezekiel, go raise some dead bones. In Acts chapter 2, what launches the apostles on mission? The appearance of the Holy Spirit that comes and falls upon them in what form? Tongues of flame. The holiness of God that calls us into mission and calls us to proclaim and live out a life for the glory of a God who is holy, the grandeur and majesty and wonder of an awe of God who opens the mouth of the dumb and the eyes of the blind. How is it, how is it, though, that Isaiah and Moses 
and apostles and you and I could possibly be in the presence of a holy God. Very briefly here, we get the gospel and breadcrumbs this morning throughout. But what I want you to see is how is it that such a power can come into your life, such holy power, a fire, and it doesn't burn you to death? How does the Holy Spirit come and reside on you as the temple of God in fire and you don't burn to death? You see, the holiness of God, you'd say this, you see, if we were to run into a burning bush and we're actually run into the holiness of God, we would think that that would actually distract us from mission, right? What does everybody do when they see the holiness of God? What do they immediately begin to think of? I'm not holy. And we would go, that's what we don't want to do. And so what do we have to do in order to remove our eyes of ourselves to back to the glory of the Holy One for whom we're supposed to serve? We need one who will cover us with his holiness, So that's what Jesus comes to do. The only way for us to come into the presence of a holy God is to become holy ourselves, and that is what Jesus comes to do. He comes to live a perfectly righteous life for us, and he places his holiness upon us so that we might enter in and behold the glory of God and not be burned up, but instead be empowered by the holiness of God for mission. To take our eyes off ourselves and to enter day in and day out into the presence of God and see, oh man, God, you are so glorious and you are so awesome. I want to live my life for this God. So if you want to know the God who is, you need to see that this Lord, this Lord is holy. And it is the holy God who calls you into mission calls you to go further in, further up, and further on. The other thing we'll see about our, the Lord, the God who is here is he is covenant-keeping. And we have already seen this in our look throughout the book of Exodus already, but let me just reference a few verses here from, this, here, from our passage today. Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. I'm going to bounce around. It says, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then the Lord said, I have sure, in verse 7, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And verse 10, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And verse 15, finally, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, chalk full through those verses I just read to you is a hearkening back to the various covenantal passages we see throughout Genesis. It is the covenant of God with his people to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that causes God to act in compassion and love for his people. In fact, at the end of Exodus chapter 2, Just before here in chapter 3, God says this in verse 24. So God heard the groaning of Israel and he remembered his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You can read about that covenant. Genesis 12, 15, 17, 22, 26, 28. God established his covenant and he established it not just for Abraham, but for how many generations? For all generations. Now centuries later, This God in Exodus chapter 3 is coming to move and to keep his promises. This is something about your God on which you can count. He will keep his words. And as our covenant gods, he has promised to be steadfast and loving to us and to be compassionate and to hear our cries. He doesn't forget his promises. He is faithful to them. Our God is holy. Yes, he, he is holy, but he is also compassionate according to his covenant promises. And so he comes down to act in our midst. 
we tend to have a view that God is one or the other. He's either holy or he is compassionate. But the true God, the true God, the God who actually is, is both holy and compassionate, holy and loving. Holiness without love is grim that we will never embrace us and that we can never embrace. But love without holiness is mere sentimentality that will never deliver you, but a God who is both loving and who is holy. Now that is a God who can deliver and embrace you and a God who is worthy of worship. And when you encounter both of these things in God, you will see the God who is. And it will call you in a great way to mission. But we need to see more in order to drive us to this call of mission and to see the lengths to which God will go to keep his covenant with his people. We think God goes to save Egypt, or Israel from Egypt. Well, that's what he promised to do. This is what God does. This is what he does. He's the deliverer. He goes and hears people who cry, and he saves them. But I want you to see the links in the story of the Bible of how far God will go in order to keep his covenant to all generations. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus teaches us that there's more going on here in the promises of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Jesus is, t- is in a debate in Mark 12 with the Sadducees, and the Sadducees are particularly known for their belief that there is no life after death. They believe in no resurrection. If you want to know the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? You may have heard this in Sunday school before. Why are the Pharisees or the Sadducees sad? They are sad, you see, because they don't believe in life after death. They don't believe in life after death, and so Jesus is in debate with them, and they believe in annihilation. You just go away. And listen to what Jesus uses to prove to them that there is indeed a resurrection. He points to the covenant. He says this in Mark chapter 12, verse 26 and 27. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, just in case you're not keeping up, That's the passage we're looking at today. How God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not, here's his logic, he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are quite wrong. What is Jesus' argument? He's saying the patriarchs were long dead, somewhere between 400 and 600 years long dead by the time God comes in Exodus 3 and says that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, here's the logic of the, of the argument Jesus is making. God cannot be the God of something that has gone extinct, that no longer exists. In other words, the Sadducees say there is no life after death. You simply die and you cease to exist. It's as like you were never here. Therefore, even if after, but if they were, if he is the God of the living, even though they may be dead, it says that even though they were long dead, the patriarchs were still existing, and therefore, God may resurrect them from the dead because of their relationship to their covenant God. In other words, he says, because they were, he is, they, their connection and relationship with Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, God will be faithful to them beyond the grave. We actually see God who binds himself covenantally to these men and to all generations. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 7, it says this. God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Now, let me ask you, how long is everlasting? Can death interrupt everlasting? No. No. 
And when God says to you, I will be your God to you, then there is nothing that can sever that relationship between you and him, not even death. Now, if God can promise that for you, then that means this. You may have to go face Pharaoh, and Pharaoh may have the power to kill you, and God says, it doesn't matter because I have the power to raise you up again. You want power and capacity for mission? You say, that's too difficult for me. That's too scary. God says, well, I have the power of life and death. He's saying, I'm the God who holds on to Abraham and cares for Abraham even in death. And this, by the way, is not just true for Moses and not just true for second generation Israel. This is true for us and all of its fullness because it says this in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and then dead in Christ will rise first. In other words, what is he saying? The God of the bush The God is a God with a people, and he will keep that people, and he will be their God even in and through their death. That means God is this promise, this covenant keeping, that God had to keep his covenant all the way into and through death for us. That's why the resurrection is so important. And that is power for mission. That he does not leave you or forsake you. He will dive into death itself to get you back, to make you his. Now, Moses may have viewed the situation that he's going to walk into in Egypt with great fear, but he was immediately reassured here that whatever house had changed, that his God had not changed, and God's promises had not changed, and the God who took care of the patriarchs and who took care of Moses will now take care of us. It says this, that the I am, the covenant God, is here for you, and we are called into a mission we are called into a mission that might involve, involve physical death. Most likely not. But there are many brothers and sisters in this world who are experiencing that. This very week, a pastor was beheaded by Boko Haram. Why? Because of the mission of God. But it may feel, you, you may not have physical death, but it may feel like the death of who? You. The death of self, the death of pride, the death of reputation and riches and comfort, all because you embrace the mission of God. God says, I am faithful to keep my promise and my covenant, and nothing will keep you from the blessings of heaven, not even death. And that is a promise you need. When it feels like what God is asking to you do to you and do in your life is feel like it's ripping your life apart. It's pulling you out of your comfort zone. It's making you do things you frankly don't want to do. But you remember, this is the God who keeps his promise. Lastly, the God who is, the Lord who is reality. The Lord who is reality. God is present. God is present. And he is real. Now what does Moses already know about God's character? We've already seen it. He's holy. And he already knows that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, God has already told him that in verse 6 himself. That's who I am. God says, I'm God. Adonai, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet in verse 12, Moses goes what? What's your name? This seems rather confusing. God's already said who he is of. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, he is asking something more than simply an identification of God. He's wanting to know, actually he's asking a question that is deep inside of us. He's saying, God, you say you're of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You say you're the God who keeps his promises, but can you? 
Can you? You see, can I trust in your name that you'll come through actually? You see, what Moses is about to face here is a cosmic war. We're going to see this very plainly next week. But what Moses is going to deal with in, the Egyptian, in Egypt is Pharaoh, one who claims to be God. And Egypt, that has gods of all sorts of things. The gods had gods of everything. They had gods of the Nile and gods of sun, and they had crop gods, and they even had cat gods. That's why you have all these pictures of cats in Egypt. It appeared, and it appeared in looking at the story of Israel that their covenant God was being beat out by the God of the Nile and cats. 400 years. And so he says, can we trust you? What's your name? What kind of God actually are you? What is your character? And what's God's answer? It's a very confusing one. God simply says, I am who I am. Sounds like the kind of thing as parents we would like to say to our kids. Who put you in charge? I am who I am. Literally in the Hebrew, it's called the, uh, the, the word that will, the Hebrew people will use, or they take a shorthand, kind of, a, uh, um, of, of these words, I am who I am. They simply use the, the heading of the words to create the word Yahweh. I am who I am is yod Heh vav Heh, Yahweh, is how they'll say it. It's shorthand for the Lord. And your Old Testament Bible, whenever you see the word Lord that has the word Yahweh behind it, it will be capitalized, all in caps, L-O-R-D, all in caps. But the word really is a simple verb. God's, it's to be. There has been endless debate on how to translate this word. Some of it, some people translate it as I am, or I was, or I will be, or even I caused to be. But what really isn't up for debate is what God is communicating here. God is saying, my name is, I am who I am, or I was who I was, or I will be who I will always be, meaning what he's saying in this is, I am self-sufficient. I am self-sustaining. I just am. In other words, God is saying, I need no one else. I am the self-sufficient, self-sustaining creator of all that is. I am. Now, there's a technical theological word for what is being communicated here. Two, two theological words. You got theophany earlier. And to now we get a seity. A seity refers to the state of power of self-existence. That is something that, it, that is, it has a power of being in and of itself. Nothing is needed to create it. The seity of God is the absolute self-sufficiency of God. The self-existence of God. And the, actually the fact that God is dependent on nothing, but everything is dependent on him. Now, this is important. Moses is about to walk into a country in which they have a God of sun, God of Nile, God of cows, God of cats. And God says, I'm simply the God I am. What is so unusual, in fact, we see it in the fire. The fire itself is representing God's aseity, God's self-existence. What's so unusual about the fire and the burning bush is that fire is usually dependent on what? Fuel. The fire can only exist as long as there is a combustible fuel. So no fuel, no fire. And yet the fire is, is but there, there what we see here is that the fire is there in the bush, but it's not consuming the bush. And what this means is that this fire does not need any fuel. This fire is self-sustaining. 
Alexander McLaren put it this way. He said, God is a flame that does not burn out. Therefore, his resources are inexhaustible. His power unwearied. He needs no rest for recuperation. He gives and is none the poor. He works and is never wearied. He loves and loves. And through the ages, the fire burns. He is simply, I am. In other words, what God is saying, that you're going to go face the God of cats and cows and Pharaoh and the Nile, and God's simply saying, well, I am the God of reality. They all, all rely and depend on me. How many beings of the universe can say that? Only one God. Everything else in the world is dependent and derived and derivative. Everything else comes from something or from somewhere, but not Yahweh. Yahweh is reality itself, the real God. So who is the I am who I am? Simply the real God, the God who is real, the God of reality. And you see how this revelation of the name and character of God might prepare Moses for his task? Moses needed to know that the God that he was taking, that was going into battle with him, wasn't going to be shaken by Pharaoh's stubbornness and Pharaoh's claims to the divine. He needed to know that this God was so far above all the gods of Egypt, that this is, this is a small thing. He knew that this God was greater than all the warrior power found in Egypt. God says, I am the reality of the sun, the moon, the Nile, and cats. And therefore, all of these things that stand in front of you, Moses, are nothing compared to me. They live and breathe and move in utter dependence on I am. You have nothing to worry about. And the God of Moses, Yahweh, is actually given a new name, an even greater revelation than an angel in the bush. And what is his name? In John chapter 8, Jesus is having an argument with more religious leaders. This happened a lot. And then he says to them, and they say to him, he's doing miracles, and they say, by what authority do you do these things? And here's what Jesus says to them in John 8, 58. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, that's either really bad grammar or seemingly nonsensical. He didn't say, before Abraham was, I was, which would have simply been the claim that he was older than Abraham, in which case he would have simply been dismissed as a quack. What did they think he said? Well, they pick up stones to stone him because it says they claim he claims to be the Lord. He said, before Abraham was, I am. In other words, Jesus is particularly taking on the mantle of Yahweh, the name of God, and saying, I'm here. You think the burning, an angel of the Lord in the burning bush is a big deal? Welcome to the second person of the Trinity in flesh. And what is the sign that Jesus is the name, the great I am? What does he say? You'll know that the great I am is here when this happens. Here's what he says in John chapter 8, verse 28. So Jesus said to them, and when you have lifted up the Son of Man, he's talking to people who will kill him. It doesn't mean worship. Throughout John, when he uses the phrase lifted up, it's referring to the cross. Then you will know I am he. When Jesus is lifted on the cross, then you will know Essentially, he says, you will know that I am who I claim to be. 
That I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God in the burning bush. I am the God of Sinai. I am the God of the smoking pot of Genesis 15. I am the God of the fire that comes on the temple. When Jesus is lifted on the cross, it is the perfect and most beautiful description of the I am who I am. On the cross, we see the true character of a holy and a loving God. We have to know who God is. We have to know his name. And Jesus reveals the name. And therefore, what is the name, only name by which we might be rescued? It says in Acts chapter 4, Jesus, and there is no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by men by which we must be saved. And in Philippians chapter 2, 9, it says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. So God says to Moses, I am reality. And Jesus shows up and says, I am reality. In other words, what Jesus is saying is is this. He's not simply saying he's the center of our faith. He is saying I must be the center of your world. There is no disconnecting your faith from every aspect of your life. Jesus says, I am the reality of your world. And this is particularly applicable with what Moses is facing. What is the reality in Moses' life? Who am I? I'm so small. I don't talk good. They won't listen to me. And Jesus goes, you're looking at the wrong reality. I am the worldview. I ask you to consider the mission of God to move further up and further in and further on. What is the reality that shapes your life? And is Jesus that reality? Is Jesus the name above all names? Is Jesus the reality that shapes your life, even in the face of your weaknesses? Is it Jesus or is it your inability? Is it Jesus or is it the largeness of the task that God has given you? Is it or is it Jesus or the annoyance and the mundaneness of the task set before you? Is it the smallness of it? Is it the length? Is it, oh my goodness, how long are you going to ask me to do this, God? Is that the primary reality of your life or is it the holy, covenant-keeping, transcendent God? And those things that shape the reality, you shape by those things, your weakness or your lack of capacity, or you shape by the God who is. Those who are shaped by the God who is raise their hands like Isaiah and they say, Lord, send me. I don't got what it takes, but you do. And so here's my challenge for you. Last week I gave you the challenge at the front end and then preached from that. This week I'm going to end with the challenge. Would you wrestle with the reality of God? and the implications of who he is. And let me say this, Moses wrestles with God. In Exodus chapter three and four, five objections. Jacob wrestles with God. Abraham wrestles with God over Sodom and Gomorrah. Wrestling with God. You see, we, we, we have this view of accepting God's call and the mission of our life as if God has only called us to something if we have peace, love, and happy feelings about the call. But the people of God far more consistently, consistently wrestle and are frustrated with God's call in their life. I don't like this. Good, that might be a sign that this is where you're supposed to go. Abraham and Sarah, God calls them. They laugh. Moses objects. Jeremiah says, I'm too young and I don't speak good either. Elijah gets depressed in the desert and says, just take me now. All the Jonah quits. He runs away as fast as he can from God's call. Consistently, God say, God, I don't like your call. I don't want to do this. I want to wrestle with you about it. 
We tend to think that God, when he calls us to something, then we simply will just be all, all happy about it. But the reality is God calls you into mission, and he calls you before maybe you even get launched in that mission, and preparing you is to come and wrestle with the God who is. To come to the burning bush and say, God, I don't like this. I don't like even necessarily what you're calling me to do. I will, therefore, I'm going to have to spend some time on my face without my shoes on with you. See, it's like God, God knows what we need. And so it's like, it's like he calls us down the road of something he's calling you to doubt there. And he says, you know, it's going to take a while to get them there. And so I'll call them. Back. Like when my kids, when we're leaving a place and they're playing with friends, you have to give them the 10-minute warning and then the five-minute warning or the two-minute warning or else what happens? There's a royal hissy fit. And so God says, you know what? I'm going to start wrestling with them 10 minutes from now. He says, I'm going to get you dressed 15 minutes before we have to go. And so the beginning of mission for you and accepting God's mission might be to actually get on your face before a holy God. And say, God, you've put this before me and I don't like it. And so I need you to show yourself to me in a holy and profound way. To show yourself to be holy and good and promise-keeping and present with me and the one who upholds all the realities of my life. So I would say this, bring your objections and bring your lack of capacity and bring your weaknesses and your lack of sufficiency and wrestle with God. You can say, Lord, I don't have it. I don't have the temperament. I'm tired. I don't talk good. I don't, I, the, the person you're calling me to is scary and harmful. Would you wrestle with those realities with the one who says, I'm the great I am? That might be for you the beginning of mission. A profound life on one where you might be used by God to be the deliverer of the lives of others. Let's pray. Oh. Lord, I'm tired just talking about it. Um. It's hard to consider your call in our life when we feel so exhausted by the present ones. Lord, would we um, take uh, for real when you call us to something, when your spirit nags at us, would we not simply ignore it? And then, Lord, after acknowledging what the call is, Lord, would we be willing to take that and put it at your feet and just say, God, this seems beyond me. This is above me. This is more than I can handle. And, Lord, in your grace and your mercy, would you reveal yourself to us? And so, Lord, would this, this sense of taking honestly your call in our life be something that drives us to maybe daily time with you? Longing to see your face. Longing to wrestle and being willing to wrestle with the reality of who you are. And Lord, would you change us? If it's touching us with a coal like Isaiah, if it's spitting on our eyes, if it's arguing with us like you do with Moses, if it's touching our hips and making us feel even weaker like you did with Jacob, would you wrestle with us and would you bring us to a place where we rely on you? and where we submit to you. Thank you for Jesus, the one who reveals the glory of who you are. 
that we are welcome into your presence with all of our doubts and all our objections and all of our questions and all of our weariness. And that you say, come to me. I am the God of the weary and I will give you rest. And then I'll call you back into mission. Would you do that for us? In Christ's name we pray, amen.